We're going to read the scripture together this morning. Uh, what we typically do at this point in our service is someone comes out and, and reads the text. But as we start the first words of the Sermon on the Mount, we thought it would be a wonderful expression of better together for us to read these together corporately as a body. So we'll put the words on the screen and I'll tee it up for you. And then when we get into the verses, we'll all say this with one voice. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 5, 3 to 6. Read this with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is the living word of God for us today. Father, would you show us what it means to follow your son, Jesus, as we hear his very words this morning. May we believe them and receive them as words of life. Amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up, my favorite thing was airplanes. I know, you know, some are into trains, some are into action figures and things, and my favorite thing was airplanes. In fact, I wanted to be a fighter pilot when I was really young. That dream was kind of crushed when I had to start wearing glasses and contacts. Uh, I could be a pilot, but no longer an Air Force fighter pilot. You have to have perfect, uncorrected 2020 vision to pursue that dream. But one of my early heroes was a test pilot named Chuck Yeager. And that name may sound familiar to some of you. Chuck Yeager was the first person that broke the sound barrier. So traveled faster than the speed of sound. And he did this way back in 1947. And you think about that, not very long after World War II and jet planes were brand new. And uh, Jaeger was a test pilot. And some people thought it couldn't be done. That this was, it's called the sound barrier for a reason. That if you traveled faster than it, you know, the, the, the physics of it, the plane would break apart and other things. In fact, others had tried and had failed. So it was a huge deal when he broke through that sound barrier and traveled faster than any human being at that time had ever traveled. Five years later, in 1952, a movie was made about a group of pilots trying to break the sound barrier, and it was fictional. It wasn't really based on the facts. It was, instead of Chuck Yeager, it was a group of British test pilots in this movie, and they were hitting up against this barrier, and some strange things would happen when they'd get close to the sound barrier. Their airplane controls would not work the way they were supposed to, and many of them crashed and died in this movie until one British pilot very bravely and uh, daringly approached the sound barrier and he had an instinct that maybe the controls worked backwards on the other side of the sound barrier. So at the critical moment where he passed through 767 miles per hour, which is approximately the, the speed of sound, instead of pulling the stick back, which should point the nose of the airplane up, he pushed it forward. Now, under all normal circumstances, that would have put him in a sharp nosedive and going that fast, that was not going to be good news. Instead, he pushed the stick forward and sure enough, his instinct was right. The plane climbed instead of dove. Now, Chuck Yeager was asked later, is that how it works? And he laughed. So it was a good movie, but that's not how it works. The controls don't work backwards when you cross the sound barrier. But I was thinking about that illustration because I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking his disciples through the sound barrier, if you want to think of it this way. He's reversing everything that they thought they knew about how the world worked and how society worked and what's up and what's down and who's up and who's down. 
You may know that when an airplane breaks the sound barrier, you get a sound of an explosion. We call it a sonic boom, and you can hear it for miles and miles around. I want you to think about it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is like a sonic boom that has been reverberating around the world now for 2,000 plus years. For everyone who hears it, it's an, incom- it's an uncomfortable explosion. For those who truly have ears to hear, it's an explosion of new life and new possibility. As I've been digging into it, Lloyd and I both, I've been humbled by how little my own understanding is of it. It's one of those things that the more you learn about it, the more you realize what you don't know about it. And at some point in time, you realize, wow, there is a lot here, no matter how many times I've read it or studied it. I've come to actually see it like a a new dimension or a new world that that God is inviting us to explore, explore together through these words of Jesus. And by the way, I think that's exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the kingdom of God. It's a new world. And so Lloyd and I have the privilege of being your tour guides and fellow pilgrims as we explore this new world together through this text, this kingdom of God over the next literally six months, uh, all the way up to Easter. We'll take a a short break for for Advent, but uh, up through Easter, we're gonna walk through this text, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, verse by verse. And as Lloyd reminded us last week in the intro, when we come under these words, we're coming under the authority of Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh. And so to hear the words, you don't just hear them. To really hear the words, you come under the authority of God and you submit yourself to these words. And so with that in mind, let's dive into this text together. We're going to start in verse 1. The first two verses we did not read together. I wanted just to focus on the words of Jesus for our corporate reading. But let me set those up in the first two verses, verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, pause it there. We'll we'll leave us hanging. We know what he said. We've already read it, but we'll get back to that in a few minutes. Now, Lloyd last week did a really great job of explaining some of the, the Old Testament references that are going on in this text. And it's easy for us to see because we just studied Moses, and we just studied the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Jesus, all throughout Matthew's gospel, is being compared to Moses. And what Matthew keeps saying over and over is, Jesus is the greater Moses. I would say it this way. Jesus is the final Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets, the fulfillment of the mediator between God and man. All those things that Moses pointed to, Jesus is the fulfillment of. And so how appropriate is it that Jesus goes up on a mountain in order to give the word of God? This is the very first time in Matthew's gospel that we get extensive quotations of Jesus' teaching. And he goes up on the mountain in order to do it. Let me show you a photo. This is what the area looks like where Jesus would have taught. We'll put that on the screen. It's in the northern part of Israel in the Galilee region. As you can see, it's very beautiful. This was taken from the property of a Catholic church called the Mount of Beatitudes, which is on the spot that tradition holds Jesus taught this sermon. We don't know exactly, but it probably was within, I don't know, an eighth of a mile or so of, of where this was. It might have even been this exact spot. Um, you can't really see it from this angle. You see the mountains on the other side of the lake. But what's on this side where Jesus would have been aren't mountains in the typical sense with you know snow-capped peaks. It was more hills. 
So picture rolling hills, green grass, uh, uh, not that different back then than it is today when this photo was taken. So a very beautiful setting. You can almost picture the, the followers of Jesus spread out, kind of listening to his words. Jesus was setting up almost a natural amphitheater for his teaching here. Uh, I don't want you to miss the fact that he sat down that's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, that's the posture of a rabbi when he went to teach. That's how rabbis would teach. They wouldn't stand up like Lloyd and I and others do. They would actually sit down. It's also significant because there's this symbolism in scripture of Jesus sitting down. You know, it's this completion. And here he is. He's about to bring this completion of the law of God through this message. It's a lot going on with that phrase. What I love about it also is, is it says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. They knew what was about to happen. They knew that him sitting down meant he was going to teach. And so here's a good prayer for our church that when we come each and every Sunday, whether you're online or whether you're with us in the room, that we would have this prayer, Jesus, would you teach us? Would you open your mouth as it says here that he did with these disciples and let your words teach us? Because as we just reminded ourselves, this is the living word of God, not just for them, for us today. Now, with that bit of a setup, the, the rest of the sermon is essentially all the, the, the red letters, you know, the actual words of Jesus Christ. And so we begin those with verse three. And this is the section, the blessed are the blessed, blessed. We call it the Beatitudes. And we'll talk more about that word in a few minutes. But let me just reread three to six. You can't hear it too many times. And then I'll explain what I think is going on here that's so uh, world-changing, so amazing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus begins this sermon with a deliberate shock. This is the sonic boom. The problem is our, our ears in modern English have trouble hearing the impact of it. They have trouble hearing how it would have been so bewildering, so incomprehensible, and to the original audience, even subversive. There are two key concepts that you have to understand right off the bat for these words to have the same impact on us as they would have had on Jesus' disciples his original audience. You need to understand what blessed is all about and you need to understand what the kingdom of heaven is all about. Now consider those like two keys that you put in the lock and it's gonna open some things for you. So let me, let me walk into that. Let's start with the word blessed. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll sometimes say blessed and sometimes blessed. Use them interchangeably. It's whatever one that sounds right to you. But uh, we call the Beatitudes, this Beatitudes, because the word blessed in Latin, or the, the Greek word that's translated into Latin is the word beatus. Now think about this, for, for hundreds of years before the Bible was translated into the language of the people, they only had access to it by hearing it in Latin when they would go to their services. So, you know, the, the teacher would come to this part and it was beatus, blah, 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 beatus, blah, blah, beatus. And so it became known as the Beatitudes, these re repetitive beatus, these blessings. Now, the problem is, in our modern English, the word blessed is so misunderstood. It kind of has this, oh, I don't know how you think of it, but almost this religious veneer to it, 
almost like, or, you know, in the South course, we use it a little bit differently. You know, it's almost like a bless your heart kind of way. Or, you know, um, uh, maybe the lady at the checkout at the Hobby Lobby says, you know, have a blessed day. And you kind of know that's code for I'm a Christian. And then, you know, if you're a Christian, you say have a blessed day back to her. And that's just kind of how we, we use it. But it means so much more than any of those kinds of ideas. In fact, I'd say it this way, misunderstanding this one word changes the whole passage. Listen to New Testament scholar Scott McKnight. On this one word, the entire passage stands, and from this one word, the whole list hangs. Get this word right, the rest falls into place. Get it wrong, the whole thing falls apart. I don't think that's an overstatement. So we want to get it right as close to right as we can. And so we, we go to the Greek, the original language. The Greek word is makarios, makarios. And it doesn't so much mean a spiritual blessing or, or a, a blessing from God. It has some of that connotation. But it actually means to be happy, to be flourishing, to be well off. So Carrie and Emily, and they got it right. You know, happy is the one. But it's deeper than just the emotion of happiness. It's the idea that the, the people that are really in a good place in life, that's what's being described here. In fact, in Greek culture, there, there were all kinds of things written about this. Like, who are the well-off ones? Who are the ones that really are doing well in life, et cetera? It was the Greek concept of the good life. Makarios. And so Jesus steps on the scene. His very first words in any extended teaching passage that we have from Jesus Christ, he says, happy and well-off are the poor in spirit. Happy and well-off are those who mourn. Happy and well-off are the meek. Happy and well-off are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now do you feel the tension? Jesus is naming the very conditions that are the exact opposite of happy and well-off. So how can this be? Answering that question takes us to the next key concept. So we talked about blessed. Now we need to talk about kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Again, this is a very misunderstood phrase because if I asked most of you to raise your hand, and I won't, but most of us, if we said, raise your hand if, if you think he's talking about heaven, you know, everyone's gonna, hand's gonna go up. And to a certain degree, you wouldn't be completely wrong. It, 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 but it's so much more than heaven. If by heaven, you mean the place where God lives and the place where you will go when you die if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's so much more than that. When the disciples heard this phrase, and remember, this was Jesus' original audience, his disciples, his followers. These, they were schooled in the Old Testament. When they heard the phrase kingdom of heaven, they wouldn't have been thinking about that place where I'm going to go when I die to be with God. That is not where their mind would have gone. Where they would have been thinking about is the Old Testament promises of the reign of God on earth through the promised Messiah, the messianic king that was going to rescue the Jewish nation and make everything right and, and you know, the, the kingdom that will be characterized by peace and justice and the lion will lay down with the lamb and, and, and all of this Old Testament prophecy. And here's the thing, 10 verses prior, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus had just proclaimed, quote, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not is coming someday and is one day sooner today than it was yesterday, Jesus says, is at hand, present tense. In other words, he was announcing at the very start of his ministry, the time has come. The kingdom is arriving. The presence of King Jesus is what inaugurated 
the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, here's another tension. But Rob, how can the kingdom be present tense when we look around the world and there's still all this craziness? Surely Jesus is not truly on the throne, not, not fully. And in a sense, that is right. There is still much more to come. So we call the kingdom a present future kingdom or sometimes an already not yet kingdom as a way just to describe this tension that yes, it has begun when Jesus came to the earth the first time, but it has not yet reached its fulfillment, which will be when he comes again the second time. And we live in the messy middle. Good way to think about it. Someone gave me this analogy once. is a little bit like um, World War II when the allies landed on Normandy Beach. War was not over. But the, but the kingdom was being proclaimed. It was like victory was on the way. We live between the time of the landing at Normandy Beach and Victory Day, long later. So is the kingdom here? Yes. Is the kingdom still coming? Yes. Will the kingdom come? Yes. It's an already, not yet. It's a present, future kingdom. When Jesus returns, he will reconcile the whole creation to himself and we will experience the kingdom of God in full and so with that context of the kingdom of heaven, we arrive at this spot in Jesus' teaching when he starts turning the world upside down. And, and that's why I loved what Carrie and Emily did. Now, the effect of Jesus' words were essentially, buckle your seatbelts because this kingdom of mine is unlike any kingdom you've ever known. And so let's put these two concepts together. The, the blessed, the, the good life, and the, the kingdom of heaven, which, which is and is not yet in Jesus Christ. And so you start to see what's going on here. Jesus is saying, if you want to know who is really well off in my kingdom, who is really the blessed one, don't look at the people you'd expect. Don't look at the rich and the powerful and the beautiful and the influential. Instead, look down low. He's, he's announcing... Um, the economy of his kingdom, the value system of his kingdom. And it's a reversal. It's a kingdom of reversal, a kingdom where up is down and down is up. And in this new world, he's saying that the kind of people that are in the best position are exactly the ones that you think are not. This is literally a new world order that Jesus is announcing. So here is the moment in time that Jesus takes the controls and makes them work backwards. Understanding that suddenly makes sense of why Jesus chose the people he chose to be his followers. The people he chose to hear his voice. The, the, the men and women, the 12 disciples plus all the other followers, many of whom are women. Why them? You see, the people hearing Jesus' voice when he actually spoke these words in real time, and wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Oh my goodness. The people hearing Jesus' voice were not the cultural elite. They were not the thought leaders. They were not the religious experts. They were not the change agents. They were not those with influence and power in our, in our vernacular. They were not those with the big social media following. In other words, the people that you and I would go after if we wanted to implement cultural change would not have been these people. According to the world's economy, Jesus got it all wrong. He ignored the people with the power and the influence. He went straight to the people at the bottom. 
his followers were overlooked, almost all of them very poor, most of them uneducated. As a collective, they seemingly had nothing to offer society. But here is God himself in the flesh. He's choosing to entrust God's time, his time, God's words, his words with people that the rest of the world wouldn't entrust with anything important. And so his choice of audience perfectly embodies the message that he's teaching. And through this sermon, he is calling these people, these low down, poor, overlooked people to himself. And he's saying, surprise, in all the ways that really matter, you're the ones that are well off. You're actually the ones on top, not on bottom. And here's the thing that blows my mind. The very act of him choosing them and entrusting them with these words and and giving them this incredible moment in history where God in the flesh is teaching them about what is true and what's not true, that very act made them the blessed ones. Now, there's one more thing really important to understand about the Beatitudes before we talk about them one by one. And this is a new thought for me that never crossed my mind until I was doing some study this week. And and here it is. Not only was Jesus saying to these men and women that you all are the truly blessed ones, but he was also saying, and through you, the blessing of God will come upon this world. It is through you, Jesus is saying, that I plan to bring the world back in order. So it's not just a blessing from God on them. It is the blessing of God that will flow through them. And this is why when you get right past the Beatitudes, in verse 13 of the sermon, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You see the connection. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. N.T. Wright is a British scholar, a brilliant New Testament scholar, and this is what he wrote about this. I think this is so helpful. He said, when God takes charge, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek and the poor and the hungry for justice people and the merciful and the peacemakers. And by the time the people with the tanks and the guns have realized what's going on, The meek and the merciful and the poor in heart have established schools and orphanages and hospitals and all sorts of projects in order to show what it looks like when God becomes king. So good. So here's the message of the Beatitudes. And I'm going to summarize this for you and then we'll we'll walk through them one by one. And then next week, Lloyd's going to come and, and walk through the rest of the Beatitudes. Here's the message of the Beatitudes. Jesus is announcing good news for a broken world. He's saying, in me, the long-hoped-for kingdom of God is arriving. And it's not like any kingdom you've ever known. It's complete inversion of the value systems of society and government, the social structure of the world. And in and through this kingdom, everything will be made whole. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And don't forget this. It's not just a future kingdom. Jesus is inviting his disciples into it right now. Real time, present time, present tense. These beatitudes, some of them are in the present, some of them are in the past. It's an already, it's a not yet. And he's inviting them, and by extension us this morning, as the Spirit re-speaks this text, not just to experience the blessing of God, 
but to become a vehicle for the blessing of God on this earth. All that's going on in this text. And so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus is an upside down kingdom. But when you really think about who it is that's speaking, going back to Lloyd's message last week, you realize, oh no, it's not actually upside down. It must be right side up. This must be the way that God intended the world to work. And this is the way it will work in eternity. So I've spent most of our time just talking about the big picture of the Beatitudes, but I don't want to miss unpacking each of these briefly, at at least touch on them enough so they make you feel uncomfortable in the best possible way. (laughs) They should. Let's walk through them. Verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, We know what it means to be poor materially. So let's just start there. A truly poor person has no resources in and of themselves to get by with. So they're completely dependent upon others to survive. Now, think about this in the ancient times. Poverty and starvation was all around them. I guarantee there would have been hardly anyone in Jesus' audience that did not know what it felt like to be so hungry they weren't sure if they were gonna have another meal. I guarantee that would have been their experience. Few of us know what that feels like, but think about someone that's completely broke with no social structures, no social systems, no government systems. There weren't any back then. Matter of life and death. If you're in that place, the only thing you can do is raise your arms, look up to heaven and say, God provide. If you don't provide for me, I'm dead. Now a spiritually poor person understands that they have no spiritual resources, no moral standing in and of themselves, and they are completely dependent upon God to rescue them. To be poor in spirit means to be aware that you are morally and spiritually bankrupt. You've got nothing. You've got no resources by which you can commend yourself to God. Great Bible scholar John Stott put it this way, In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society, who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do was to cry to God for mercy and he heard their cry. Men and women, that is it. When you know that all you can do is cry to God for mercy, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's when you're poor in spirit. And so Jesus is saying the poor in spirit are the blessed ones. They're the well-off ones. They're the fortunate ones because the kingdom is theirs. This is a present tense beatitude. Not just it will be theirs someday. It is theirs. They are the ones who possess it. They are the truly rich ones because by emptying emptying themselves, they've made room for God. They've made room for the kingdom. So think about that song we sang earlier, that that new song that that our worship team wrote for us. 
We welcome your kingdom here. What are we saying when we welcome his kingdom here? We're emptying ourselves to make room for this kingdom. And, and the, the truly rich ones are these who are emptying themselves and then receiving far more than they could have ever given up. It's the spiritually bankrupt people who suddenly find themselves overwhelmingly rich with grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This one is clear enough, but it's just hard to believe. Uh, every cell in your body instinctively avoids pain and loss and grief. Jesus is actually saying here, it's more wonderful to mourn and be comforted than it is to never have mourned at all. I think about Jesus later in his life when he lost his friend Lazarus, very close to him, very dear to him, special friend. And he went to the tomb of Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are there and they're weeping bitterly and Jesus chooses to enter into grief. And he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the grave, but he allows his heart, his emotions to understand and feel the weight of the most difficult human emotion. Grief. And then he raises Lazarus from the grave and he gives him back. He gives him back to Mary and Martha. Can you imagine the joy? Do you see that the joy of the reunion is surely greater than the grief of the loss? Do you see that the joy of the reunion is made greater because of the grief of the loss? Men and women, this is how it will be in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5 Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is such an unappealing word in English, um, which is actually kind of perfect in this context. We don't like to mourn. We don't like to be meek. Here's what I found amazing as I studied this word. The Greek word that's translated into English as meek is the exact same word that Jesus uses later in Matthew, Matthew eleven twenty nine to describe himself. In fact, there's only one place in the whole Bible where we get a description of Jesus' heart, his core, who he is, the, 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 the Jesus inside. And here's what he says, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Oh my, it's the most powerful man who ever lived. <laughs> You know, this, is, this, is, this is the God of the universe in flesh. He says, I'm gentle. That word gentle, that's the same Greek word that's translated in Matthew 5 as meek. To be meek is to be humble. 
To be meek is not to think of yourself less than you actually are. You know, oh, woe is me, I'm terrible, no, you know, I'm a worthless person. That's not actually true humility. True humility is to think correctly about yourself, not worse about yourself. So think about this. Correctly about yourself means you are bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God, and yet God chose you, and God loved you, and Jesus died for you, and you've been filled with all spiritual blessings. Do you see this like simultaneous low and exalted, and you hold those intentions? That is true humility. I like the way Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. Meekness is a humble and gentle attitude toward others, which is determined by a true estimate of ourselves. A true estimate of yourselves allows you to interact with others with humility and gentleness. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, that it's rather in the kingdom of God, the earth itself will be given to the meek. Did you notice that? They shall inherit the earth. The earth itself will be given to the meek, not to the people who try through their strength and power to possess the earth. but to those who rightly know it is not theirs to take. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And finally, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is a little like that word blessed that, you know, we have all this religious uh, baggage that we've put on it. it. It means more in actuality than just moral goodness, although it doesn't mean less. It means more. Righteousness is um, a longing for God to make everything right. Um, it's, it's a hunger and thirst for God to, to fix the broken pieces, starting with you, of course, starting with your own cleansing, starting with the own pieces of your heart and then flowing out through you into your relationships. And ultimately, as Jesus says, he will come to make all things new. That hungering and thirsting for that, that is what Jesus is talking about here. And so those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because here's the thing. Jesus is saying, you are not only going to witness it, you're going to be able to be a part of it. The righteousness, the rightness of the coming kingdom will not only be something you see, but something that will flow through you. You will be used as an instrument of the kingdom of God, bringing righteousness and justice onto this earth. Never in full, Jesus will do it in full, but don't we have a part to play as we follow our Savior? We follow Jesus. Now, for any of you who have experienced it, you know that being used by God is the most satisfying thing on the planet. It just is. Now, what do we do with this passage? <laughs> what do we do with the Beatitudes in terms of the so what? You know, in terms of the application. Guys, I struggled with this like all week. Actually, for several weeks, I've been thinking about this text and I'm struggling. Now, how do you apply this? You know, what do you do with this? And on the one hand, it's just so deep and so incredible and amazing. How do you, you know, shrink it down to one, you know, go out and do such and such? I don't think you can. But on the other hand, we must embody it, not just read it. And so I've come to this conclusion. I don't think it's as much a matter of what we do with it as it is a matter of what it does in us. And by it, I mean the, the, the mess, the text, the words of God, but I also mean the spirit in us who authored the words through Jesus Christ himself, the son of God. And now that same spirit is in us, re-teaching us, re-speaking these words of Jesus Christ. 
What will he do in us through these words? I came across a quote by Serve Pinkers. I had to Google how to pronounce that. And I think you'll appreciate this. We'll put it on the screen. We can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God. All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. Lloyd and I were talking about how do we help our congregation make the words of the Sermon on the Mount not just something we hear, but something we begin to embody. And so what we've decided to do is, is at the end of each message, we're going to put one question on the screen. Lloyd invited you to a question last week. And in fact, he encouraged you to stand up. And I think the question was something like, if, if, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're choosing to come under the authority of Jesus, stand up. And you're not going to stand up this morning, but I want you to reflect on a question that's related to this text. And we'll put it up on the screen. Let's go ahead and do that. It's under this banner of Jesus, show me what it means to follow you, which is a theme throughout this sermon. And here's the question. How would your life change if you emptied yourself and began living by faith in God's right side up kingdom? I want to invite you just to reflect on this for a couple of minutes. And let's see what the Spirit will do in us.